The following is an interview with philosopher Michael Grosso on the topic of miracles. Now, if you like this video, make sure to subscribe and smash that like button and enjoy the interview. All right, we are here today with philosopher extraordinaire Michael Grosso, who got his PhD in philosophy from Columbia University and has taught philosophy and the humanities at Kennedy University, City University of New York, and New Jersey City University. He has written many books, including Experiencing the Next World Now, The Man Who Could Fly, St. Joseph of Copertino and the Mystery of Levitation, and his latest, the book we will be discussing today, Smile of the Universe, Miracles in an Age of Disbelief. Welcome, Michael. It's good to have you here. Well, I'm delighted to be here, Dan. Oh, good. Now, what got you interested in writing a book about miracles? Where did you get the idea to write this book? Well, a couple of things. Uh, first of all, I, for many years, I've now stopped teaching philosophy. And one of the central ideas or problems in philosophy is the relationship between mind and matter. And from the beginning, I had difficulties with the mainstream view of uh, that problem, which tended to be, at least when I, still now, but even when I was uh, a student at Columbia University in the 1960s, ancient history, uh, I, uh, I, it was, um, not cool to say that you had a uh, an, an experience of ESP. I remember I had mentioned to one of my fellow students uh, that I once had such an experience, and he said, "That's impossible. Uh, that would imply dualism." And uh, so I realized soon enough that the mainstream view tended to be physicalist in its orientation toward the nature of mind. I had experiences from the beginning, from early in my life, not often, not frequently, but from time to time, I had experiences that I couldn't explain physically. Experience, things that we would nowadays refer to as ESP, strange dreams in which I anticipated the future, and so on. So I got on my own horse and went into the, into the world of... Uh, uh, of unusual experience and have been doing it on and off now for, for, for quite a, a long while and realizing that there's an enormous amount of fascinating material out there that tends to be ignored by mainstream, uh, mainstream press, mainstream science. Everyday people are more open unless they've been bullied <laughs> by their teachers or whatnot. So, uh, so anyway, that's how I got into it because of my own experiences and the conflict uh, with my, in terms of my education, it's an intellectual conflict. That's, that's all I'm talking about. Right. And I think anybody who, if they look back on their life, there's at least one experience which they've had, which doesn't really fit with the scientific worldview, which they can't explain. Um, some people just brush those off or just file them away as, you know, that was weird, but other people like you really want to try and understand what's going on, especially when numerous uh, numbers of people have had these experiences. Absolutely. I think you're quite right that if, uh, if you, I mean, I have taught courses in 
parapsychology. And one of the things I would do in, uh, is invite my students to write papers on experiences that they can personally investigate their own, a family member, a friend, something that happened in a sport or whatever. And almost invariably, every student came up with good stories. Of course, I gave them the criteria, what counts as a paranormal phenomenon, et cetera, what do you, you know, and what, what type of experience. So I, was, I still have many of those papers every now and then I quote them because they dug up all kinds of unusual stories. So you're quite right uh, about that, uh, the, the widespreadness of the phenomena in contrast to the academic shyness in the face of it. Right. And let's talk about that. What constitutes a miracle? What's the definition of a miracle? Well, the way I am defining it. Okay. Uh, a religious person in a particular tradition will associate a miracle with the intervention of deity. Uh, that's one sense of the word. It's not the sense I use. My book is based on empirical evidence as to the explanation of the miracles, which I'll define more precisely in a minute, that's up to the reader. It's a personal thing. But my definition of, of an experience uh, or an event that is miraculous is two things. One, rhetorical. The fact the word miracle uh, is rooted in a Sanskrit word for smile. So meaning a miracle is what makes you smile with wonder, awe, and admiration. That's cool, and that's subjective, and it's important. However, the second criterion for me is that the uh, alleged miracle, the thing that astonishes you, is genuinely and authentically inexplicable, unexplainable, especially in terms of the prevailing uh, scientific worldview uh, and its materialist outlook and reductionism. So those are the, that's how I uh, uh, de would define a, uh, a miracle. Okay, very good. And I think the first miracle that everybody can relate to, I guess, unless there are robots among us, I hope not, but uh, is the miracle of consciousness itself. Because if you look at it, we have billions of neurons, I think 100 billion neurons. Of course, I've killed a few. I probably only have 98 billion, but anyway, they can grow back. They can grow back. <laughs> they can grow back. That's right. Anyway, um, we have chemicals and electricity flowing through those neurons. That's the physical basis. But how do we go from chemicals and electricity in the brain to our experience of things like love, our experience of the world around us, seeing it and the experience of feeling and pain and all these emotions um, it seems like there's a disconnect there from the physical basis to the ex conscious experience. What do you say about that? Absolutely. And uh, what you've just described very nicely is a mystery that even the most diehard materialists admit to today. Uh, you know, all the books out there that write about this will quote so-and-so who's a noted uh, reductionist materialist. And they always say when it comes to consciousness, they're clueless because precisely the gap the, uh, between the physical reality of the brain, which is visible, tangible, sensible, material object existing in space and time, in contrast to our mental life, peer into your own self. You have memories, dreams, feelings, 
ecstasy, horror, all of the, you have memories. No one knows how to explain memory, by the way. Uh, I mean, now they're saying the whole brain is required for every little memory. But in other words, the qualitative radical difference between the nature of our inner world and our mental life and our bodies and brains is obvious to everybody, should be obvious to everybody. And, but the, the hope has been the materialists keep trying. They show the connections. There are undoubted interactions between minds, our minds and our brains, for sure. But interaction is not the same. Interaction means A and B, two different things interacting. Uh, or as they say, correlation is not identity. It's another neat way of putting it. Right. Very well said. And let's get into some of the miracles in your book. One kind of miracle you talk about in the book is weeping religious statues, most often uh, or typically the Virgin Mary statues that produce tears, sometimes even tears of blood. Now, you said you witnessed this phenomenon yourself, correct? I did, actually. I think it was in uh, 1994. I I heard, uh, I watched on television, Channel 4, I even remember that. Uh, announcing the fact that a, a, uh, uh, a Greek Orthodox church in Astoria, New York, uh, had a uh, statue uh, or icon of St. Irene that was weeping and people were going to visit. Now, I knew about this phenomenon. I knew, in fact, that in, in, during the 1990s, there were reports of that taking place all over the world. But here, I was living in New York, and I happened to know where Astoria was because I was born there. <laughs> At the time, I was living in Manhattan. And so I jumped in my car and, and visited uh, the Orthodox Church of St. Irene. And I got online, and I waited my turn. And I, was, I went with a colleague, by the way. I went twice, once alone and once with a colleague. And on both occasions... We saw the same thing. We saw the eyes of this immaterial icon and image of Saint Irene gushing. Although I don't say uh, we saw, I remember seeing large tears lurking, sort of with a tremulous. You know, as you would imagine, water has a sort of a tremulous effect, a liquid effect. I managed to interview the priest there. He recounted to me the whole history of this icon, and it's it behaved in a strange way in the past on several occasions. And when it did, it usually was a signal of some major political uh, upsetting of the religious life of many uh, of the believers, you see. There was some kind of disturbance that was associated. And then there are reports of the healings and all kinds of other stuff. uh, in that, but yes, I, I witnessed that that one myself, uh, and uh, I, I was sort of lucky to, to be able to do that. Now, did you examine the statue to try and eliminate any physical source uh, of the tears? I, I looked around. I, I it was in some kind of a, a cabinet, and uh, I asked the, the priest that, uh, and he, he said there was none. I could not see how there could be any rigged up thing from this small container, which was resting on top of a, of a table. And uh, I mean, the object itself was no larger than this. No, I, 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 I could not say that I did a careful scientific investigation of that object. 
and proved 100% that it was not some kind of trick or accident, but I doubt it very much. And um, I, I have no reason to believe that it was anything but what I saw. Okay, so my next question would be, um, have there been thorough scientific investigations of any of these statues to um, confirm they are authentically paranormal? There's no physical source of the tears? Uh, absolutely. And, and the one that, that comes across my mind, I have actually a book. It's not probably within reach here. A description of a the so-called uh, the Madonna of Syracuse in 1954, a family... Uh, interestingly enough, the head of the household was a disbelieving communist, had no religious beliefs whatsoever. His wife, who was pregnant, uh, was sort of indifferent, but she was having a bad pregnancy and, and undergoing hysterical blindness and pains. And while this was happening, one of her uh, cousins who was with her noticed this uh, statue of the Madonna, uh, a small thing on the wall, was pouring out tears. And, and in an instant, the moment uh, Yanuso was her, the name of the, uh, of the woman, uh, became aware of this, her sight was, she regained her sight, the pains were vanished, she was completely healed. And before you know it, the neighbors came in and it's still pouring water and they're collecting the, uh, not water, what looked like tears, okay? Uh, to make a fascinating story short, it, it wept, poured out tears for four consecutive days. It became headlines all over the world. Um, Physicians, doctors, scientists came onto the scene, examined it, it was, and they reported it was equivalent to human tears, and it was chemically identical to human tears. Uh, in the end, that they removed the woman's house and they built a, a cathedral to celebrate this event. This is an interesting part of the sociology of miracles. It often they often result in uh, well changes in architecture and in shrines, which then become focal points for continued, uh, sometimes, uh, as in the case of Lourdes, for ongoing uh, miraculous, in the sense that I'm using the word, phenomena. So that, that was one uh, case that uh, was quite dramatic, uh, worldwide, well-known, no doubt about the fact that this was an authentic, inexplicable phenomenon the replication of human-like tears produced out of an inanimate object. Go figure. <laughs> it's a challenge. And I will just say this, in the 1990s, I'll just add this point. Uh, I, I seemed to recall from my records, and I'm only talking about what, I, what I'm acquainted with, but the 1990s, from what I could make out, that this particular phenomenon was widespread all over the world. In Europe, uh, there was one famous case in, in Japan. Uh, and even in the 1990s, there was a case in, uh, in a small Catholic church just outside of Washington, D.C. Uh, and I read some really interesting material. And in this particular case, Father Bruce was his name. He had some minor, small stigmata, but in his presence, 
two, three, four, five, six different statues of the Madonna would all be producing tears. Uh, reporters from the Washington Post came on the scene and observed it and confirmed it. I don't know what they wrote about it, but I have read independent accounts of it. So it's a very, very strange phenomenon that involves psychokinetic materialization, apparently out of nothing, but governed by the, uh, the influence of symbols. Because in all of these cases, it's either a symbol of Christ, a symbol of the Madonna, a crucifix, something that is symbolic of the transcendent power. So that's pretty interesting. Right, right. And uh, it's not just Catholics who have a monopoly on miracles, correct? It's uh, also other religions. I know Sai Baba. Uh, can you report on the materializations connected with him? Well, absolutely. Sai Baba, uh, 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 who's now deceased, uh, and the man who investigated him uh, 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 recently deceased also, but um, it, the, the Sai Baba, I've interviewed two people um, that reported to me, two perfectly, to my mind, credible, everyday human beings who were followers of Sai Baba, who had portraits of him. And on various occasions, they simply exuded vibhuti, that's the name, the Hindu word for the sacred ash. Uh, so that was one thing that happened. And what was interesting about that is that it happened to his image and he wasn't around, so you can't accuse him of, of doing some kind of a trick. But what Sai Baba uh, was apparently brilliant at and what the investigators found, he could materialize objects on demand. And there are specific examples in uh, uh, Erlinda Haraldson uh, is the name of the, of the investigator. Uh, and his books are quite marvelous, incidentally. But uh, what Erlinda would ask for Sai Baba to materialize would be something completely out of season, completely unexpected and unknown, and on several occasions, he did it, and he, and he, Sai Baba, apparently produced, reportedly produced the impossible object. Now, no magician can do that. So uh, he has been, Sai Baba has been accused of uh, sleight of hand. I don't know if these stories are true. Uh, he's also been accused of molesting young men. That may be true, but is not necessarily inconsistent with his paranormal powers. Some, para, some paranormalists are saintly, others are just everyday folks, and some of them, some on record can be quite nasty and, and anything but holy. So this, although my judgment, in my judgment, the most potent and most marvelous manifestors of the miraculous usually tend to be yogis or shamans or saintly, highly evolved individuals. That's my impression at any rate. Right. So it's definitely miraculous if he can produce an object that I just tell him on the spot. He had no idea of anticipating. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, check it out with uh, Erlander's book. I mean, it's this stuff is incredible. You have to read the context and see the details and make a judgment. Uh, the problem is that uh, the reluctance on the part of some people to admit this uh, material is real, which I don't understand, 
I mean, life is much more interesting with miracles than without them, I would say. Um, but what the resistance is, I don't quite understand. Uh, and um, they won't even look at the evidence. I mean, I know people that uh, I have shoved in their hands books that are the best providing evidence of life after death. They won't even touch the book. It freaks them out. Oh, I've seen, I've seen that same thing. Yeah. 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 I, I don't understand it. Again, why be afraid of more life? I don't get it. Exactly. Maybe I'm uh, just naive. <laughs> <laughs> but let's talk about there's not just uh, materializations. Another fascinating phenomenon is dematerialization. Uh, yeah. Lord Ganesha, um, the Hindu god, uh, once uh, drank milk. Can you talk about that story? Oh, that one, I, 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 I always think about it because it's so fantastic and yet how quickly uh, it's been sort of forgotten or ignored. But again, go back to the 1995 and I believe is the, is, is the, uh, the, uh, the year and the day. There was one day, I think it was September in 1995, in which a, somebody, in, a man in, uh, had a dream of Ganesha. And the dream said, bring me milk. And the man woke up and he ran out to the nearest temple and he brought some milk. But this time the milk just disappeared. And uh, he, he then showed that to someone else. And the other person did perform the same thing, put the milk. And it, 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 instead of just lying there, it disappeared, dematerialized. Well, by the end of the day... All of India was doing this and all over the world where there were statues and temples dedicated to, to Ganesha, uh, people were doing the same thing. There was a milk shortage in India on that day. Uh, it, it's, it stopped at the end of the day. The scientists who, didn't, who couldn't bear this utterly strange thing happening, came up with some kind of cockamamie explanation, which is worthless. By the way, I witnessed this uh, miracle myself, I, I should mention this, on CNN. In those days I had it, I don't use CNN anymore. But I remember a British reporter uh, who was reporting on the phenomenon, because it was going on all over the world and people were reporting on it. He said, I'm going to try it. So he takes a little cup of milk and the camera zooms in on, on the milk. And I can see with my own eyes, it's not spilling over. It's disappearing. It's dematerial slowly. Just, I mean, not that slow. Just zoom, gone. And I will never forget the look of astonishment on the face of that uh, reporter. I was astonished too. To add to this story, later on, I had later in the... In the year, I believe this was, uh, I, two of my students, Indian students, reported to me that they were around that day and they themselves went online to feed Ganesha and experience the, the, the disappearance of the milk. And they wrote me up beautiful papers describing in detail. And one of my students said, he went on the line three times to convince himself. It was so mind-blowing. He wanted to be absolutely sure he wasn't hallucinating. So there again, uh, dematerialization in association with a symbolic object is such a mind-boggling phenomenon. And yet, 
you don't hear scientists talking about it. I mean, uh, it's, it's forgot. I don't forget. And I, I know, by the way, it had a huge impact on um, uh, uh, religion in India, according to many reports I've read, and talked about it being the miracle of the millennium. I mean, it was a really extraordinary thing. Incidentally, as far as I know, there are later days where it, it occurred again. There were, but I haven't tracked down those uh, recurrences, which were like maybe months or, or a year later. But yeah, that's that's an, a phenomenon of, of great uh, strangeness. Right. Uh, and for anybody interested, you can go on YouTube right now and type in that Lord Ganesha drinking milk. And there are videos uh, you right. can watch today of the phenomenon. Exactly. Yeah. And it and, is really strange to see. Yeah. I mean, it, it's... Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, you know, so on the one hand, you have materialization. Where is that stuff coming from? Where's the blood and the tears coming from? Is it being apported from somewhere else, uh, from someone else's body or something? Uh, is it being created ex nihilo? Uh, I can't even begin to imagine. And the milk that disappears, that dematerialize, is it just turn into nothingness? Well, that would violate the, the law of uh, the preservation, you know, matter and energy. That's a real shocker. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so th th this stuff is a challenge to the modern scientific intellect. And uh, there are some uh, individuals that are interested. But I will I have to admit, I deliberately focus on the most provocative, the strangest and the most mind blowing partly because I find it more fun to do so. And secondly, because the challenge is even bigger because the more striking and weirder the phenomenon, the more drastic we're being asked to stretch our minds and try to figure the whole process out. Uh, as, but the, the criterion, however, for me in, in the book that I've written and in my work, I want real evidence. See, now, there's no, no question about this dematerialization. Millions of people witnessed it. I witnessed it. Right. So, now, th there was a skeptical interpretation, oh, something yeah. about the statue absorbing the milk in some way. Do you know yeah. about that? Oh, yeah, but it's meaningless. I mean, I, I could see that's not what happened. My students described it, how does it absorb and what the problem, aside from the inherent absurdity of that attempt to explain, the uh, effect. Why did it happen only that one day? Okay. True. That doesn't make any sense. Any any naturalistic attempt to explain away that particular phenomenon is faced with the fact that every day people are bringing milk to Ganesha, but it doesn't. They don't. It doesn't dematerialize every day. Right. And, day. and then later. Okay, that's another issue that it may. The phenomenon may have taken off again, which is. It often does these things; they repeat themselves. But I, I at any rate, am and am convinced of the reality of that particular phenomenon. Right, and besides just it happening for one day, that would have been a hell of a lot of milk to absorb. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, well, uh, let's see. Another miracle you talk about is uh, the mystic and St. Joseph of Copertino. Now, this deals with levitation. 
Um, he had what might be called flights of ecstasy, where uh, crowds would see him levitating, sometimes flying over their heads. Um, how much? How good is the evidence that he actually levitated? Good question. The evidence is absolutely compelling. Uh, if a person levitates in a, let's say, in a uh, in a dark uh, mediumistic room, and they say, "Oh, I saw him go up in the air," the dark, it's an emotional thing, and you're expecting it to happen. Uh, it, there's ambiguity, but in the case of Joseph, first of all, it happened to him only in in, in broad daylight, and was unpredictable. Anything that would set him off into a highly spiritual, ecstatic state of mind could cause him to rise a little bit and hover in the air from inches for 15, 20 minutes, half an hour, go up maybe three feet. Other times he'd go very high over people's heads. Once he landed on a tree, just like a bird and is hovering on a tree. But these, uh, Things happened in broad daylight in front of anybody that was around. There were in the front, the right, the arch, the archive, the Vatican archives altogether from the different parts of Italy where these were recorded has uh, roughly 150 sworn testimonies by different people, uh, including a pope, uh, artists, craftsmen, um, everyday people all kinds of people. However, the 150 sworn written testimonies, which would, which, which uh, asserted that, that they witnessed him in the air, is a fraction of the people who actually would have, must have seen him in the course of a, year, a, a career of 35 years as a priest, where he was famous for this. People came from all over Europe and Italy, just a witness, not just his uh, psychic phenomena, but because he was a notoriously holy man. And there was something radiant and amazing about him spiritually. Uh, and he was a healer uh, and uh, a prophet. He, he knew what was going on, what was coming. Uh, he was annoyingly telepathic. There's funny stories of, of his fellow monks saying, hey, he's off because whenever you're around Joseph and if you're thinking the wrong thought, he'd catch you out. He'd say, you're supposed to be praying and you're thinking of dinner, <laughs> <laughs> stuff like that. And so his superiors actually ended up by scolding him and saying, leave us alone. Uh, <laughs> you know, be a little more, what is the word, uh, uh, indirect in the way you try to correct us or something like that. And so he didn't, after that, he would, instead of exposing your thoughts, he would say, you should be aiming for the good more closely or something like something more uh, civil than a, a raw exposure of your inner mental wanderings. Interesting story. Right. So uh, before a levitation, this must be, he must be in getting into an altered state of consciousness, correct? Like he's deep in prayer or something sets him off. Absolutely. Which... Absolutely. The, 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 and I, it's, it's, I think this is true for most of the stories of saints and yogis uh, and uh, highly spiritual people. But it's exceptionally, obvious, outrageously true in the case of Joseph that 
he is not only does he uh, when he slips into these states uh, of ecstasy uh, he sometimes he could be have the opposite effect he'll go down and 10 men could not lift him up other times the direction will take him up but uh his um uh, let me see how how, how shall I uh, describe this? Um, yeah, I, I, I the, the 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 interesting thing was that oh yeah, I, now I remember what is I wanted to add the detail that when he went into the state of ecstasy and was about to go up to in, in terms of his levitation, he would let out almost invariably the blood curdling scream. So I, I really wonder about that screen. It's like a tension. Something is being released in him. Uh, but there's no doubt about the fact, you, your basic question, that uh, he was in an altered state of, of consciousness. And my, my way of explaining the connection between the ecstasy and the levitation is um, fairly simple, and there may be some truth to it, but it seems to me that when you're ecstatic, the word means ecstasis, being out of yourself. When you are, when your whole mind is emptied of all the everyday distractions and uh, things that fill your mind, when that, when you're in that state, um, it, that may be the state in which the energy or whatever the force is that allows for the occurrence of levitation is able to make its way into you. Whereas most of the time we're kind of uh, filled up. <laughs> we're full of ourselves, right? So there's right. no room for something brand new and extraordinary to enter into our consciousness. So that's why we associate inspiration with great art. It's another, a sense of an influx from something outside. And, but the issue was how to, how to trigger it. Joseph had a natural genius for dissociation what I call creative dissociation. Dissociation is supposed to be a, uh, a symptom of a mental uh, difficulty, and it may be, but there's a type of dissociation which is ecstatic and creative. When I'm sitting in front of a canvas and painting or listening to a beautiful piece of music, right? I forget myself, I'm lost, I'm ecstatic, I don't levitate. <laughs> I'm hoping, but uh, I'm out of myself. And it's in that out-of-myself state that inspiration, the energy that allows for levitation, insights into the future, who knows, whatever it is, is more likely to happen. Right. So my, and at one point in your book, you describe it as like dream reality fusing with the waking world. It's as if in an altered state of consciousness, as we presume St. Joseph was when he had these levitations, one can make the waking world as fluid and malleable as the dream world is. Can you, uh, is that what you think? Yes. I, I, you know, it's very difficult to, to even try to begin to explain levitation because it involves suspending one of the basic form of the force of the universe. But, um, I, I think that the, um, uh, I'm sorry, what was the question again? The, the, the last point, I, I went, went off for a split second. Uh, 
Well, yeah, dream reality fusing with waking reality. It's like in a dream, we can fly, we can change things around us, we can do all these miraculous things. It's kind of like taking that world and bringing it into reality. That's what that's what it seems like to me, because you a normal person can dream that he's flying. Right. Uh, I have had flying dreams. Anything, as you say, can happen in a dream. Now, it's, it is conceivable to me, uh, and there are some writers about hyperspace who talk about, uh, who write on the phenomenon of hyperspace, argue that the dream is a space. I mean, when you're in a dream world, you're in a world, you're seeing things, feeling things, but it's not in physical space. No one can see you, you're in a mental space. In that mental space, all things are possible. The dead can appear, uh, the, uh, you can fly. Uh, you might see a beautiful person fall in love in a dream. That's never happened to me, but it sounds like fun if it could happen. So, you know, um, it is conceivable to me that the ecstatic the, or the yogi, the person who's training his or her mind to such a degree that they have, they clear all the rubbish and the distractions out that what's left, it, what happens when we go to sleep, when we shut the world out, we, we dream. So it's, it is conceivable to me that the space that we dream in could temporarily occupy our, our mental life uh, uh, it, while we're fully awake and somehow the two spaces being compacted, one might actually levitate. So I try to explain that as a possibility. And um, it, it's uh, something I want to explore with some physicists uh, I, I know who are sympathetic to the reality of the phenomenon and think that perhaps with the new physics or uh, concepts of hyperspace, uh, concepts of, of quantum mechanics, we might be able to get a handle on understanding this uh, strange phenomenon. Right. And I keep hearing or reading articles about quantum phenomenon being demonstrated at uh, macroscopic levels, more and more macroscopic levels. So, yes, you know, yes, yes. I, I, I wish I, I have to study more, but I'm not a trained physicist. So I hear a lot of discussion, a lot of popular talk about quantum this and quantum that. But uh, there's definitely something very strange about the quantum world that is mysterious and puzzling. And the quantum scientists who discovered quantum physics knew that. There was something shockingly strange about the physical universe after all. Uh, right, so and still to this day, nobody really understands quantum mechanics. Exactly, but, and, and they are, and, and when apparently I'm told that when they study it in, in uh, graduate school, they're, they're told don't worry about trying to explain it. Just follow the equations. Master the equations. Don't ponder the mysteries involved in the nature of quantum mechanics, which I think only the unimaginative robotic students are going to follow completely. Exactly. So, uh, yeah, when you study the paranormal and materializations like in the seance room, and there's poltergeist phenomenon where there's materializations and dematerializations. I mean, when you study this stuff, it really does make you think that just like in the dream world, in this world, anything seems to be possible. 
there are so many reports of these types of phenomenon happening. Well, I, I agree. And uh, we do spend a significant part of our lives in dream space every night. Uh, the average person uh, dreams a certain amount of hours. So it's, and then also even in waking states, uh, uh, we're, we're very close to the dream when we get a little tired. If I remember, you know, driving, say you're taking a bus ride at school early in the morning and you're a little sleepy, you're just a little, a few inches away, a little, you're right on the edge of sleep. Uh, and so it's very close. Uh, and then think, in other words, the dream or the extra physical dimension of reality is very close to us. And one su suggestion or indication of that closeness is the near-death experience. You're walking along and, and suddenly a car hits you and you're thrown into cardiac arrest in, in, a, in two seconds. And in two seconds, suddenly there you are in a universe of light, you're going through the dark tunnel. You know the story. Right. Uh, and open up into a, into a new universe. Of course, there are many things that happen in the classic near-death experience. They don't all happen to everybody. But my point is how instantaneously close we are. Uh, think about it this way. The mind, if the mind is not in space, it's, and it pervades, it's everywhere. It's in us, it's around us. The body and our attachment to it, our survival depends on it, is the veil that prevents us from getting into the deepest region of our mental life. But it's all there. It's there. Uh, and um, you can get drunk, you can do a drug, you can have a lapse of attention, you can dream, you can have a near-death experience, uh, and suddenly you're in another universe. Right. DMT. I've been reading a lot about that. DMT. Yes. That's a drug that I never took. I, 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 I've heard about it and, uh, and know some people who, who try it. And yes, it works very quickly. Uh, apparently, uh, I remember meeting, uh, the late Terrence McKenna who wrote extensively about DMT. We were both at a conference, both speaking together at a conference. And he invited me to try some right on the spot just before I was about <laughs> to give a talk. I said, no, thanks, Terrence. I'll, and, but I, I have never done that particular uh, adventure. Right. But people who've done it, you know, they say it's like they completely disconnect from this world. They're in a totally other universe, other dimension, other space. Exactly. Exactly. So, <laughs> right. There are, there are all kinds of circumstances that can just shift just a little bit sometimes or a big deal too, like a DMT experience or near death, that, that's big stuff. But I think there are a lot of subtle changes going on in our lives all the time. And sometimes just on the borderline between uh, being awake and falling asleep, the, the hypnagogic region, or when you wake up in the morning, the hypnopompic, uh, I can remember a number of experiences I've had in those twilight moment, twilight zone between the waking and the dreaming state. And, uh, and gosh, sometimes it's quite amazing the things that pop out suddenly uh, while you're on the edge. There's just a vague nothing. And you're just on the threshold of going into REM sleep. 
bang, and then something you see a face or a. Uh, it happens to me so often that I get I get a little scared because the faces, I see faces in my hypnagogic state, and they come real close. Most of the time, you know, they're sort of harmless looking, but it's a bit strange. Yeah, for sure. And let's talk real quick about the stigmata. Uh, some religious figures develop the wounds of Christ, like Padre Pio was a famous yeah. one. And uh, what usually brings on stigmata? Well, I, I, in the case of Padre Pio, whom I, I think I know something about, uh, it, it's very clear uh, what, what's going on. He, he, Padre Pio, as one person who knew him personally, told me, was in love with Jesus. It's the only way you can put it. That doesn't mean it was a homosexual love. It was a divine love, but it was love. And the love that he felt uh, entailed the, the identification with the suffering part of Jesus. But of course, not just the suffering part of another man or woman, it is the suffering of the divine. And to identify with that suffering of the divine is the surest way, so to speak, to become divine and to gain the benefits of one's encounter with the divine reality. And I, again, I'm not going to try to explain Padre Pio's stigmata, but the focus of attention and the identification with Jesus and the suffering of Jesus apparently has, in the case of, the first case on record is of St. Um, uh, Francis back in the Middle Ages, right? And throughout history, and there have been many, many women who have had the stigmata, but Padre Pio was the most famous male stigmatist in the 20th century. He had the stigmata for 50 years. They never got infected. They were exposed wounds, never infected. They never smelled. In fact, they would give off a perfume um, and when he died, weeks before he actually died, they gradually disappeared. And the day he died, the last flake fell off the palm of his hand. And there were no scars on his body from these bleeding wounds of 50 years. Now, I asked a, a dermatologist from Columbia University if that was possible. He says, it's inconceivable that you could have an open wound for 50 years, have it heal and, and leave no scar. So uh, again, I can't explain it. Right, and so it, it seems like it's uh, intense concentration on this image of the crucified Christ. And then the mind creates right. the wound based off this focus. That, that, that's how it seemed. Now, uh, uh, I, I suppose that Padre Pio would not agree with our interpretation. He would say that, I don't think he would say anything about it, try to explain it, but, uh, but it does seem to be the case that, some, that it's related to the mind of the person who has the experience. Uh, I don't think I'm going to have the, the stigma. Uh, you know, it, it, but now and then people who totally identify with the suffering of Jesus and they sanctify that suffering, it performs, it may result in some miraculous physical transformations. Right. And before we go on, I just want to 
ask you how much time you have because we've already spent 50 minutes here. So I don't know if you're pressed for time or not. We can talk a little longer. Okay. Well, I wanted to ask about the um, Padre Pio's battles with demons. Uh, You said on one occasion, the iron bars in his cell were found twisted out of shape after a night of battling with perceived demonic forces. And he would often be covered with bruises on his face after battling these invisible forces. Now, I know you said in your book, you know, the other friars, they would hear some ruckus going on. uh, But did anybody actually view one of these intense battles he had? Did they actually go up there, light up a cigarette and watch or something like that? (laughs) Well, not likely they would light, light up a cigarette. I don't know the answer to that question. Uh, I, I don't know of any example where there were eyewitnesses. I mean, uh, there are eyewitnesses to the levitation, to the stigmata, but the, that, that I don't know uh, of any. But what's, what you can witness with your eyes were the wounds on his body. I, in fact, I, there is a photograph I've seen of him of one of these after night uh, encounters. So, you you know, the, the bloody nose, the black eyes and the wounds all over from battling with something needs to be explained. Now, if someone were to say that Padre Pio beat himself up in the middle of the night just to pretend that he's a holy man being attacked by the devil, you're not gonna persuade me that way. On the other hand, is it, conceivable that he psychosomatically conjured up from his own subliminal mind uh, forces that um, uh, to prove to himself perhaps that, that, that he was indeed suffering authentically, you could strain it because the, what the body can do uh, uh, under suggestion, auto-suggestion is quite amazing. Right. If you can produce stigmata uh, mentally, then you could produce bruises on your face and uh, feelings of being attacked, I presume. Yes, I think I think that you you could conceivably make that argument. I don't know how, again, to uh, uh, to account for this vivid perception of an external agent that's doing it to him. Uh, Is it because he's deeply believing in these diabolic agencies and therefore creates them with the intensity of his imagination, uh, that could be. On the other hand, there are authentic stories, and I'm not an expert uh, deep explorer of this phenomenon, of possession of external uh, diabolic agents. I mean, there are stories, they're not many. I mean, and the people who study these phenomena, the you know, even within the church, they admit it's rare. Most of the time, the alleged uh, possession cases are just pathological. There's no supernatural element. But there are instances that have been reported where it does seem like a supernatural or paranormal element is involved, uh, exuding diabolic destructive agency. There are cases like that. Where that where they're coming from? Are they coming from the next world? If there is a next world, are they coming from authentic devils and who have escaped hell and trying to hassle us? I don't know. Uh, are they self-created? <clears throat> uh, 
Uh, again, I'm, 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 I'm not sure, but, the, but one thing that it does say to us <clears throat> is that the mind has extraordinary powers over the body. And if we could learn to harness those powers toward health, rather than be focused on the dark agents that are causing us to have, you know, be beaten up and suffering, I think that would be the, the correct uh, scientific uh, orientation toward positive application and uh, exploitation of this creative power of the mind toward health, not toward disease. Right. Yeah. And I brought up the demonic attacks on Padre Pio because I just always wondered, you know, when I was reading your book, I wondered what that would have looked like. Like you would have seen his head fly back yeah, you know, as yeah. if somebody punched him and then a bruise forming and then he got thrown on the floor. Right. Right. But you couldn't right. see anything there. It's yeah, probably I'm enough. guessing. Yeah. No. And, and so, uh, yeah, it, it, it's look like everything else in this area. There's there's <clears throat> some bright, clear evidence for stuff and then there are lots of mysteries and puzzles and unanswered questions so we can handle the uncertainty right <laughs> right yeah. another fascinating miracle you brought up was uh, a woman therese newman who didn't eat anything except like i think the the wafer what's it called the, the eucharist the wafer uh -huh. and she didn't drink anything now what is the evidence that she really didn't eat or drink well, she was definitely uh, known. Uh, she was a lively, active person <clears throat> who um, uh, never ate. No one ever saw her eat. Uh, no one ever saw her in a bathroom illuminating. But a bunch of scientists got together <clears throat> and nuns, and they tested her for two solid weeks. Two solid weeks Somebody, not somebody, several people were watching her every minute to make sure that she never drank, ate, or I think she was probably allowed to take that one wafer each day. And for two solid weeks, she passed the test. There was no in, uh, evidence whatsoever. And this now, was 24 hours a day, right? Always correct. being observed. Oh, oh, of course. Yeah, that's the whole idea. And uh, she was uh, in no way, uh, the, uh, she, she drank ate and eliminated zilch for two solid weeks and, and remained in perfect health. Uh, the other thing about her story that's so interesting is that she was not a, a recluse. She, hang, she liked to hang out with people, go. So she was visible all the time in public. Nobody ever saw her eat or drink. So uh, what was her explanation? Uh, what, how did she describe this? Why didn't she need to eat or drink? Because the, the the divine was feeding her. If you believe in the divine, you can believe in anything. Right. And I think that story really shows us the power of belief. And it wasn't it Jesus who said you could move mountains if you believe and do not doubt. Absolutely. But the, the word for belief, if I may add something, uh, uh, Dan, to your point, which I agree with. Uh, the word belief in Greek is not belief. The translation, the word is pistis. And it means trust. And trust is a little different from belief because belief is like abstract, right? But if I trust, it's a feeling, it's an expectation, uh, an optimistic, hopeful attitude uh, that verging on, but you're going to create it, you see. So um, again, 
people can have that intense belief and nothing happens. But it does seem to be one of the variables involved in, uh, in the production of these extraordinary phenomena. So yeah, that was uh, a very good point that you made. It's a, an incredible illustration. But on the other hand, uh, I'm not sure if I decided tomorrow that I believe in it in any of being possible how long I would last. <laughs> right. I think most of us too, we can, we can try to convince ourselves that we believe, you know, I, if I wanted to move a mountain, for instance, I could tell myself, listen, I've read about miracles. I know all these things are possible. I believe Jesus was, was true when he said that I believe I can do it. Mountain move. Mm -hmm. And it's not going to happen though, because I know deep down I've been too conditioned by society by my, my schooling, by my experience, and I'm going to doubt. I'm not really going to trust that that's going to happen. Right, right. And the doubt is the, the deadly enemy of, uh, uh, of this attunement to the creative spirit, the doubt. If the, if the sun and moon should doubt, said William Blake, they'd immediately go out. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, clever way of putting it, right? Yeah, indeed. And we could talk about miraculous healings, uh, but let's skip over a little bit and talk about manipulating the external world. Uh, such so we uh, obviously we can control our bodies. People have spontaneous remissions and and uh, miraculous healings, but also. Uh, there have been times where holy men or shamans have either summoned or stopped rain. Oh, yeah. Uh, tell us about the case of Gunsang Rinzing and how he stopped a rainstorm so that a <laughs> festival could take place. Yeah, well, I, I read this account of, of this uh, monk who uh, stopped a rainstorm. <coughs> Excuse me. Yeah, if you need to get some water, go ahead. I have, yes, I do. Uh, I have, the allergies in where I live are pretty bad. Um, the crucial thing about that particular story that I recall is the long period of time he kept uh, chanting. And I think that's a, a clue. People often uh, ask, well, how can I make a miracle happen or something like that? It's it usually the result of a whole lifetime of, of orient, being oriented in a certain direction. And even the practices, whether it be prayer or meditation or chanting to stop a, a, a rainstorm, uh, it's got to be done, you know, powerfully, with complete confidence and persistently. But I remember that story and, and, and the author who uh, recounted, uh, the, it was an anthropologist, <clears throat> admitted that for two weeks he was disoriented after he witnessed this, because it was just, it's so unusual to see something like that. It uh, kind of throws off your whole sense of reality. And right. do I remember correctly that it was like just the one area around <clears throat> him that was cut off from rain and the surrounding area beyond yeah. that was still yeah, raining? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. That, 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 that was uh, the case. And, uh, so, yeah, uh, there are stories of Padre Pio, by the way, uh, and Joseph of Corpettino, 
maybe not, I don't recall them stopping weather, but I recall stories of uh, uh, Padre, Padre Giuseppe going through rainstorms and emerging perfectly dry, stuff like that. Totally counter <laughs> what you would expect in a normal situation. So yeah, lots of strange, uh, and then the, 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 the death of some famous um, Tibetan yogis are often associated with rainbows in the sky, which is a fascinating phenomenon. I haven't seen too many cases of, of that, but the cases I have seen are, are pretty, pretty impressive. So uh, the, the type of miraculous phenomenon is mediated by the culture. So the, the crucifixion of Jesus leads to the stigmata. Uh, uh, although I think there are reports of stigmata in other religions, by the way, because there are other ways you can inflict pain on people and many victims, holy victims have been speared, beaten, crucified various ways and, and followers then want to tend to replicate those wounds. The, the psychokinetic imagination is quite inventive and very elastic. I think it adapts to what it needs to do in the context. Uh, so the ancient Greek Dionysian dance cults, for example, the women who were involved in those cults could dance up mountains all night. They were inexhaustible. And they were in state, in the state again, state of ecstasy, uh, thanks to the flute and the drum that kept them going, the Dionysian beat. And they would climb up mountains all night long, dancing, ripping trees out of, out of the ground, having supernormal uh, strength. Uh, they're not themselves. There's something that's taking over. And uh, it's, um, they're putting everything into, uh, uh, they're eliminating everything of their normal selves and investing themselves completely in this uh, other reality, uh, whatever it may be. And that's right. how you get the incredible results. Right. So it seems like there's this deeper self within all of us that is capable of extraordinary things if we can just tap into it. Now, you have the theory of mind at large. Um, can you tell us what the theory of mind at large is and how each of us relates to it? Well, okay. Uh, I'll try to say that. I mean, mind at large is a term used by Aldous Huxley, the writer. And it's simply a kind of neutral term to describe what in religions are we call God, the great mind, the, the, the angel, the, uh, the, uh, the oversoul. It's sort of a more neutral way of describing about the, the greater mind, the creative, the divine mind. So one can argue that each of us is connected to a, we, we know from Freud and Jung about the, about the unconscious. But the unconscious is deeper than Freud imagined and deeper and more extensive and more creative than even Jung imagined it. There are lots of you know, evidence and people that you can study to see that particularly Myers, Frederick Myers, great English psychologist. So increasingly, uh, the more we compare the various things that people can do, we're led to infer that those powers, which are mysterious and seem to come out of nowhere, are latent in the human being. That's the only reliable clue to where the stuff is coming from, because when so-and-so is in that room, 
something happens, strange, right? Something appears, uh, there's a music from nowhere or whatever it is. So I think increasingly today, a minority, uh, but may become the majority eventually, are beginning to understand that our minds are much bigger, deeper, wider, and more creative than we ever imagined. In fact, that we are the belief of many people. I'm not the only uh, writer who's exploring the idea of one mind, one great mind. Uh, and I think that what might be happening is a kind of uh, evolution of religion. The more the psychology and the parapsychology and the consciousness studies of scientists enlighten us about the nature of the mind, the more we're going to perhaps learn to see <clears throat> that what we have called the, all of the agencies outside of ourselves may also, in a sense, be inside of ourselves. But I don't want to overstate that. I don't want to reduce it to sort of mere subjectivity, because if my understanding of mind at large, the greater mind is correct, <clears throat> it's not something out there, it's out and in, up and down. It's, it's everywhere. It, it pervades our natural world. And that's why it seems to me <clears throat> uh, the possibilities of accessing it uh, are, are endless. The circumstances that might change, opportunities that might present themselves, especially if you're drawing upon a traditional belief system like yoga or Christian mysticism or the native Indian, which is one of my favorites, uh, vision quest uh, or Tibetan styles of meditation, highly evolved. So you have traditions, but it often happens that people simply discover things accidentally. Uh, there's this wonderful phenomenon it's called the third man. People that get lost uh, they, there are wonderful studies of this phenomenon, totally lost in places where there's no hope whatsoever. They'll suddenly, someone appear, will appear and, uh, and, and, and say, go this way and, and give them a little hint, or they'll feel a tap on the back of their head to go in a certain direction. Right. And, John Geiger wrote the book, oh, The Third right. Man Factor. The, the Third Man uh, Factor. Exactly. That, that's an amazingly interesting book. But what does that tell us? Again, it says that there's, there's something that pervades even out in the wilderness, right? And it's obviously coming through and out of ourselves in some sense. But um, uh, yes, the, 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 the possibilities of connecting with the greater mind are, they could be anywhere from accidental to deliberate. You know, the most traditional way is just talk prayer, then the more organized way involves uh, meditation, where, where, there, where there's a focus. There's, there are physical uh, procedures to gain access to mind at large, like fasting. Why fasting? Uh, well, <clears throat> fasting sort of weakens you physically, tones you down. Uh, it thins you out, as it were, the, the boundaries separating you. Uh, stillness, just the stillness. I've been reading about uh, Native American styles of uh, waiting for the vision. And again and again, they're told, just be very still, 
and listen carefully. Just listen to the tiny little twitters of birds in the distance. Don't move, don't just become almost uh, totally receptive. Uh, and then on the other hand, uh, in sports, in, in the midst of violent effort and, 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 and striving, uh, or in the midst of war, uh, it often happens that strange things break through that assist right. people or warn people. So that my, my ruling intuition uh, of late is that the opportunities are everywhere and every, uh, every how, as it were, uh, to, to grow, to advance our consciousness. The trick is to wake up to the possibilities and to get excited about them and, and to be willing to try things that are new. Yeah. And do you uh, believe in these ideas of sort of manifesting your dreams, being a co-creator of your reality with mind at large and being able to, you know, ask God for things and have them come true? Yeah, I, I like the co-creating terminology. I'm not sure what it means, but it does seem to me as though each human being is in a co-creative relationship between his or her inner and rather finite struggling world and life with a larger mind, a larger life, a larger source of uh, creativity and reality that is within us and around us, but inaccessible in any obvious way. We have to work toward it. We have to discover it step by step. And above all, we have to have some kind of a belief system or some organized perception of, of how the world works. But then again, there are so many stories of people just being uh, instructed from without or just uh, caught up by forces outside of themselves that take off and drive them. So, but uh, as far as your general question, there are to, how to engage with mind at large to reduce it to those terms. Uh, my general view is it's too many times, it's most of the time it's unpredictable, but there are practices throughout history that people have learned to develop. Uh, meditation, prayer, fasting, uh, wandering through nature, art, music, all these are pathways to a deeper life. Yeah, so it seems to me like one way would be imagination. <laughs> um, you know, like holding a strong image in your mind, like you know, we talked about the stigmata. That's one possible reason that could occur is this holding a strong image in your mind and thinking about it a lot can can maybe manifest it or cutting your connection down with this reality, like fasting, you know, you're you're um, not eating food, you're not being grounded, you're sort of losing your connection a little bit, or mm -hmm. through meditation, trying to cut out all other stimuli and kind of break down the connection with this world so you tap into something deeper. You said it very well. Uh, and uh, my view is that we're entering a period of history where we're gonna learn more and more about the our inner potentials and there will be groups and schools of thought and modes of approach. But I think that the signal of the new age, as it were, is that each of us has to find our own path. 
I, I don't mean as in totally solitary way because we can dialogue, we can share our views, but I think we're past, at least I am and many others, I believe, I hope, are past uh, the idea that um, a kind of um, fundamentalist authoritarianism associated with any spiritual tradition. All the great spiritual traditions are open, not dogmatic, not punishing. Uh, if you're gonna punish, you punish yourself through self-discipline. That's something else. Uh, and people do that and, and, and often benefit from it. But my sense of, the, of, the, of what the future is going to be more flexible, sort of when we practice art today or music, we don't say there's one way to make music or one way to make art. There are many ways, many traditions, and it's perfectly cool to each of us find our own way. Uh, and it may be that we need to join up with a group or even a traditional a society, a, a tradition, uh, traditional practices. Uh, but that should be our choice. And uh, what the result of my research is to simply say, there's something there. It, it, there's more there than we can even begin to imagine. So let's explore. Exactly. And, uh, you know, we talked a lot about uh, miracles in a religious context, but it's very important for people to know miraculous things happen in other contexts as well. Um, you don't have to be a member of any particular religion or even religious at all to see the miraculous in your life. Absolutely. I think that that's one of the uh, my aims in this book. And, and I think as my conclusion, the very end whether I wrote it down or I just imagined that I wrote it down was something to the effect that every human being is a miracle. And uh, the, the, the adventure of your life is to live out your miraculous nature, whatever it is that you discover in yourself as you go along. Uh, so that, that, that's, that's, that would be my concluding thought on this. Okay, so we'll wrap it up here. Uh, anything else you want to say about how people can make the miraculous happen in your life, in their <laughs> lives? Uh, fall in love with something. It doesn't have to be another person. But I believe that love, uh, whatever it is that we do love, it could be a cause, it could be an art form, it could be people, it could be your family, it could be your a person. But whatever it is that you love has the power to take you out of yourself. And the purer the love, the purer the outing of yourself, and the greater, I believe, the happiness and the likelihood of these, some of these marvelous things that we're talking about happening. Okay, very well said. And I want to thank you again for coming on the show here. And uh, maybe we can do this again sometime. And uh, right. I wish you the best. Well, thank you, I, uh, Dan. I enjoyed uh, uh, chatting with you. And uh, best of all, take care now. Okay, thank you.